The text for today is a continuation of the Easter message from Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what, he had, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and, gave it to, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the gospel of the Lord. So, like I said, this text is a continuation of the text that we read on Easter Sunday. Uh, we read Luke 12, 24, verses 1 to 12. Now we're picking up at verse 13. And uh, the text helps us understand that by saying that this is that same day. So this is Easter, probably afternoon into evening, um, that these guys are on their way. And they're walking to Emmaus. Um, we know that these two guys were not part of Jesus' 12 disciples. One of them is named Cleopas, which we know is not a name of one of the 12 who are called apostles. Um, but it does clue us in that Jesus had numerous disciples who probably were, th- were with him almost as much as those 12 who were later named apostles. These two are on the way to a village called Emmaus, Um, We don't know exactly where Emmaus is, uh, but that should not be a problem for us because it's not that we don't know if Emmaus existed. We actually just have multiple Emmauses or Emmaii. I'm not really sure how it goes, but uh, we have multiple of them and we're not sure exactly which one it is. And frankly, it doesn't affect the story at all. Um, While they're on the way, Jesus comes and joins them. And the text tells us that they were kept from recognizing him as uh, he was walking with them. This seems to be a miraculous thing that God is doing because of the moment when they do actually recognize him. And we'll we'll cover that when we get there, but God is setting them up to learn something very profound about their recognition of Jesus. So throughout this time, they don't recognize that it's Jesus, even though he would have looked the same as he looked before he died. And we know that his body didn't fundamentally change. We just know that it was risen and therefore glorified. 
While they're walking along, Jesus starts a conversation, asks them, what are you guys talking about? And uh, the disciples say to him, well, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know what happened in these last couple days? And I do think this is really interesting because this answer actually gives a little bit more veracity to the story of the resurrection. Um, The story of the resurrection was a very public event as well as the death and the trial of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a big deal in their culture. And this was a time during the Passover when Jerusalem was as full as it ever got. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people packed into a small area. And the way that Cleopas asks this question is as if to say, like literally everybody knew that this crazy thing was happening with Jesus of Nazareth being crucified. And now this story of the resurrection is starting to spread. This fits with what the Apostle Paul does in the book of Acts when he's talking to Governor Festus and King Agrippa. And he says, when he's defending the resurrection of Jesus, he says, this stuff didn't happen in a corner. This was all very public. You have hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of witnesses of these events. This is not a secret. Um, We have many of those evidences even still today. Uh, The person of Jesus is more written about than any other historical figure, and we have numerous witnesses to what happened during his life. Um, We even worked through some of those last week in uh, our Easter Bible study about the, the historical evidence for the resurrection. For a moment, just compare this to other world religions. The kickoff event, if you will, of other world religions is not as public as this. It's somebody went into a cave saw a vision of God. Somebody received some sort of message from God, and you just have to believe them. Christianity uniquely says, no, this isn't about some special revelation. This is about historical, verifiable, witnessed events that we are simply living in line with. Anyways, uh, he tasks him, well, do you know all these things that happened in Jerusalem in these days? And the interesting thing about this to me is, of course Jesus knows. Like, not even because he's God, like, he was literally the centerpiece of the entire thing. He knows exactly what happened in probably better detail than these guys do, but did you see how he reacts to them? What things? He plays dumb. And as I was meditating on this, I I thought, you know, he doesn't have to. Like, he could keep up the, the whole thing about them not recognizing him. He could have said something like, oh, yeah, I heard about that, Jesus of Nazareth. I heard he got crucified and maybe risen now. Like, what's that about? But he doesn't do that. He, he asks them, what things? In this, I think there's something really profound for our prayer life. Like, Jesus knows what's going on in your life, probably better than you do. And yet he still asks you to tell him about it. And the thing is, the answer that these guys give is the wrong answer, right? Like they say, we thought he was going to be the one who's going to redeem Israel, namely bring Israel back to former political glory. They don't even have their theology right, and yet Jesus still wants to hear their prayers. And if that doesn't comfort you and encourage you to your prayer life, I don't know what does. You might think it's minuscule. Jesus wants to hear about it. You may think your prayers are messy. Jesus wants to hear about it. You might not have all of your theology straight, Jesus still wants to hear you. You might be yelling at Jesus for all the terrible things that have happened in your life, and you might be angry about it. Go visit with Job. Job did the exact same thing, and God loved it. What things, Jesus asks, because he wants you to talk to him. So they explain the whole thing. They say, well, the chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be crucified. He was killed, the whole deal. And now our women are telling this crazy story about the fact that he might be risen. I mean, what's that? Well, Jesus then calls them on it. He says, you guys, 
Do you guys even read? Like, do you remember the Old Testament? What the prophets said? What Moses wrote? That the Messiah had to suffer and then enter his glory? Do you guys remember those words? Well, obviously they didn't. So Jesus exposes all of that to them. He walks through the Old Testament with them and shows them how on every page it is pointing to this Messiah who is going to do exactly what Jesus did. They finally get to the town. Jesus seems like he's going to go a little bit farther. So the disciples say to him, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. This statement, by the way, is the foundation of one of the more ancient practices of the church. It's a thing called compline. Compline is a worship service, particularly at the end of the day. It was in the daily orders of worship. Um, it's a verse that's based, or excuse me, a service that's based on this idea of "Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening and the day is almost over." It's a beautiful service. It's a, a quiet service. It's a darkened service, um, and it's beneficial. We actually, in our household, do compline almost every week just for ourselves. Um, if you're interested in that, you can either come over to our house sometime while we're doing compline, or if you want me to organize one for us to try as a congregation please let me know. Um, And if you do want that, write it down right now because you won't remember by the end of the sermon. Um, But that's where it comes from. This compline practice came from those statement of the disciples. Jesus obliges them, right? He goes in and stays with them. They sit down at the table and then Luke says that he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Which if that sounds familiar, there's a really good reason for it. It's an allusion to the Lord's Supper. Jesus is mimicking what he did on Monday, Thursday, as he instituted the Lord's Supper to his disciples. It is at this moment where they recognize him and he disappears from their sight. They immediately turn to one another, ask each other, were our hearts not burning within us as he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They realize what they've seen and they run back to Jerusalem to tell everyone. And that's the text. Now, I think there's really one big thought that the text of the road to Emmaus is trying to teach us, but it really breaks down into three sort of subthoughts, if you will. Uh, the big thought is, where do you meet Jesus? Where do you meet Jesus? Um, Luke is trying to get us to this point. Remember, this is a continuation of the, res- the resurrection narrative. He's saying, Jesus is risen. How are you going to meet him now? And the three places that Luke shows us in this text, well, Jesus shows us and Luke records, are that you're going to find Jesus in the scriptures, in the Lord's Supper, and in Christian community. And those are the three points that are on your outline, in your notes, if you want to take notes along with us. So we're going to walk through each of these ways and see how the text shows us how we meet Jesus in each of these places. So the first is the scriptures. We noted when we were going through the Easter account last week that it is kind of odd that uh, Jesus doesn't show up in the text at all, right? The, the way that the women realize that Jesus is risen from the dead is that the angels say to them, do you remember his words? And we said that Luke is doing that on purpose to teach us that we find Jesus in scripture, in his words. Luke is reinforcing that idea here. Um, what I want you to think about is, I mean, if you were Jesus, or maybe you were a Christian at that time and you knew Jesus had risen, how would you prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the risen Christ? I don't know about you, but this is how I would do it. I would bring Jesus along with me, just places, and I would say, it's Jesus. He was dead and he's alive again. And then I would get like 90s rap video and go like, what are you going to do about it? But that's not what Jesus does, right? Jesus doesn't show up with historical evidence. Jesus chooses to go to scripture. 
Like Jesus could have exposed himself to them and said, I am Jesus, it's me. You recognize me, right? I'm alive and I was dead and here we go. But no, he goes back to scripture. He says, do you remember what the prophets said? Do you remember what Moses wrote? I think there's, there's two really profound things in this for us. One of them for our own devotional lives and one of them for our evangelism as we think about how do we share our faith with other people. Uh, let's start with, with evangelism. Um, I think my default approach to helping people realize that Jesus is who he says he is, is the stuff that I showed you in Bible study last Sunday, the historical evidence for the resurrection, that we can prove all of the events of the historical or the, of the resurrection narrative, not just from the Bible as God's word, but from historical written evidence, even extra biblical evidence. That's like my default way of going at it. But that's not Jesus' way. Jesus actually chooses to go back to Old Testament prophecy and show how all those things are fulfilled in Jesus. So conservative estimates say that there are about 450 to maybe 500 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that are all fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Now those are conservative estimates. If you want to go with people who see a few more messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, you're going to get upwards of 1,000, maybe even 2,000 prophecies or allusions to the Messiah, all fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And if you're a skeptic, you have to reckon with that. How is it that like, authors writing from 400 years to 1,500 years before Jesus even existed prophesied specific events in his life that he fulfilled and there's no way he could have like figured it out beforehand. Like where he was going to be born, who his parents were going to be, how many pieces of silver he was going to be betrayed for, the exact method of his death before that method of death even existed. I mean, you have, that's just four of 450 or 500. So how do you reckon with that? I think many people will say, well, of course, Old Testament legends, we don't know whether that's actually what, this, what has happened or what was written down. I would actually say that is a very weak argument. Um, I'll just tell you what my, my uh, New Testament professor at uh, the seminary said. He said, uh, we have 24,000 fragments or full copies of the New Testament, which agree with 99.5% reliability. And in that 0.5% that don't agree, there is no doctrine of scripture that has actually changed. But we still study it because, I mean, 0.5% is a decent amount of text in the New Testament. But we don't do this for the Old Testament because there's really no discrepancies in the Old Testament. In other words, the Jews were really good at preserving the Old Testament. They were meticulous about their copying. We have very few copies that disagree with each other when it comes to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is even more sure in its text than what we have in the New Testament. So you've got to reckon with it. All those prophecies, hundreds, maybe thousands of things said about Jesus of Nazareth before he even existed. How do you reckon with that? But then I think there's a valuable thing for us in a devotional way, and that's how do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? Because Jesus obviously saw himself on every single page because he wrote the book. I think it's, it's intimidating for some people to read the Old Testament. I mean, I, I know this is true of some of you because you've told me. You'd rather just read the New Testament. It's a little bit easier. There's not as much cultural or historical context that you have to know in order to understand what's going on. And I totally get that. Uh, the Old Testament is usually more challenging. In fact, the Bible itself says that the Old Testament is a little bit more challenging than the New Testament. But let me give you a, maybe a, an interpretive key, the interpretive key that Jesus gives us right here. When you're reading the Old Testament, every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name. 
The whole Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. And uh, you saw me do that with the children, right? As we went through those Old Testament narratives that I talked with them about, um, I showed you how Jesus is really the shadow. He is the echo. He is the picture that is being projected forward in every one of those stories. And you can do this. You can go read through the Old Testament. You can find Jesus on every page. Let me just give you a couple more examples. Uh, Adam's son, Abel, he died at the hands of his brother, yet his brother was forgiven by God. Jesus was killed at the hands of his brothers, but he forgave them. Seth, Abel's brother, was re- replaced Abel as a new life. Jesus' life replaces our life by faith, so God sees Jesus in our place. When everyone died, Noah lived, and because of that, he brought new life to the world. While everyone dies, Jesus lives in order to bring new life to the world. Job underwent terrible suffering to prove God's power over Satan. Jesus underwent ultimate suffering to prove God's power over sin, death, and Satan. Melchizedek was a priest and a king whose origins were unknown. Jesus is our priest and king whose origins are not of this world. Abraham went to a land that was not his own in order to be a father of nation, a father and nation of people for God. Jesus came into this world, which was not where he was from, in order to bring forth a kingdom of people for God. Isaac was the son of that father of the nation, whom the father nearly sacrificed. Jesus was the son of the eternal father, who was sacrificed. Joseph was sold by his brothers only only to ascend to the throne of Egypt to bless them. Jesus was sold by one of his disciples only to ascend to the right hand of God to bless all people. Moses led his people out of slavery in uh, in Egypt to the promised land and was a mediator between God and Israel throughout. Jesus leads us out of slavery to sin into the promised land of heaven and is our mediator between us and God. And all of that is from three books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, and Job. And I didn't even do half of the pictures in Genesis. Like one thirteenth of the Old Testament right there, all pointing to the person of Jesus. Now, if that still seems a little bit intimidating for you, let me give you a resource. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Jesus Storybook Bible, for my money, is the best children's Bible on the market today. Uh, we actually have a number of copies of it, and we give them to any family with children for free. The beauty of this story is that it is always pointing forward to Jesus in the telling of all the Old Testament narratives. And so if you struggle with reading the Old Testament, I'll give you a a gift. You can borrow one of our Jesus Storybook Bibles. We want to keep them so we can give them to children. But if seriously, if you struggle reading the Old Testament, come talk to me after church and we'll lend you a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's super accessible because it's written for children, but it will show you how each of these stories points forward to Jesus. By the way, write that down too, because you'll forget it by the end of the sermon, if you want to borrow one. So let's back up here for a moment, see the big picture. We meet Jesus in the scripture, because the scripture is not only God's word, but it is where we see that God's word is always pointing to Jesus. We tend to think of ourselves as the protagonists of the story, right? We think of ourselves as the main character, but it is not that way. The main character of life itself is Jesus, and that is a beautiful thing, because that means the pressure is off you. Right? If it's all about Jesus and Jesus is victorious like we saw in the book of Revelation, then your story, it might be good, it might be bad, but it's going to be redeemed in Jesus. You might be a failure or it might be a success, it doesn't matter. Jesus has already made you righteous before God. The scripture is not about you, it's always about Jesus, and you meet Jesus there. Okay, so you meet Jesus in the scriptures, you also meet him in the Lord's Supper. So when the disciples and Jesus sit down to eat, 
Uh, Jesus starts, in, in a sense, enacting the exact same ritual of the Lord's Supper that he had instituted on Monday, Thursday. And when he gets to this moment where he breaks the bread, he immediately disappears from their sight. Right? That's what the text says. Now, again, if I'm Jesus in this moment, this is not how I'm playing it. Okay? Uh, because think about the potential joy of that moment. Like, you are the risen Christ, and here are your disciples. And you're going to show them that you are alive. And because you live, they also will live. You are inaugurating a new kingdom where people are not going to die, but they are going to live forever in perfection with God. And all of the things that were sad about that moment, they're going to come untrue. You're Jesus. And, and what do you do? Well, you don't stay for the hugs and the tears and the overjoyed cries. You go. Why? Because Jesus wants us to realize that in the same way those disciples had him in the flesh, they still have him with bread and wine. I believe the reason that God does not allow the disciples to recognize Jesus until this moment is so that they realize that when they have the risen physical Jesus and all they're left with is bread and wine, that that's important. We are a church who believes that when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, that he means it. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we receive true body and true blood of Jesus. We also know that from other scriptures, the bread and the wine continue to be there. And so we receive all four elements all together. We receive bread, wine, and miraculously Jesus' body and his blood. And we don't exactly know how that all works, but frankly, can you explain any of Jesus' miracles? We just believe it because that's what Jesus said. Now, not every church believes this, and don't hear me saying that I think those churches are necessarily not Christians or anything like that. You can still be saved and have some parts of your theology wrong, but I want you to realize why this is so important. Um, And before I do that, maybe I'll just give you one proof as to why we can believe that this is Jesus' body and blood when we receive it in the Lord's Supper. Um, When when Jesus would have instituted the Lord's Supper, he he would have said, uh, this, my body, this, my blood. He would not have actually said is because Aramaic doesn't have a linking verb. Right? They, they understand the linking verb rather than actually explicitly say it like we do. So I, I suppose as you hear Jesus' words, there might be a little bit of ambiguity. Did he mean that this is my body or this represents my body? But when the apostles write down Jesus' words, they write it down in Greek. And Greek, like English, has a linking verb. So you can explicitly say is or represents. All three gospel writers who record the words of Jesus on that night say, he said, this is. And to go a step farther, the apostle Paul, when he is correcting all sorts of errors in the church in Corinth in regard to how they practice the Lord's Supper, he does not correct them in thinking that the body and blood are just represented with bread and wine. He corrects like 12 other things with how they practice the Lord's Supper but he affirms them in saying, this is my body, this is my blood. So we receive Jesus right here. Let me give you a couple reasons why I think that's so profound. Um, First of all, Satan wants you to believe that your standing with God is contingent on your emotions. He wants us to think in this term that has been coined in modern uh, North American evangelicalism, a personal relationship with Jesus. 
Have you heard this before? You can understand that statement correctly, but it's really difficult if you have any Western society assumptions. What most people hear when they think personal relationship with Jesus, they hear that word relationship and they think of something like dating. Like we like each other, we're around each other, but kind of how our relationship is going is based on how each person is behaving. So if I'm not really doing very well, I'm not going to church, I'm not praying enough, I'm not being kind to my neighbor, and and things start to go bad, that's because God is kind of angry with me. But that's not how God deals with us. God deals with us in objective realities. God frankly doesn't care how you feel. That's not to say that emotions aren't important, but when God wants to communicate with you where you stand with him, he does not care about how you feel about it. He communicates with you in objective reality. When you come here and you take the bread and the wine, you may not feel good about your relationship with God, but God declares once and for all, you are forgiven, we are good. I remember a story of a guy, he was very depressed. He was sitting outside, it's a cloudy day. Everything was going wrong from him in life, and then all of a sudden the clouds part, and the sun shines down on him, and he feels the warmth on his face, and he thinks to himself, God is with me. That's gross, brothers and sisters, because that is not how God works. When God wants to communicate to you whether he is with you or not, he communicates using objective reality. I mean, this is the temptation that Adam and Eve fell into in the garden, right? Remember what Satan says to Eve? Oh, I know that God objectively said that thing about how if you eat the fruit, you're going to die. But what about this? How do you think it would feel? Where you could be like God. You would know good and evil. And what does the text actually tell us that Eve did? She looked at the fruit and she found that it was profitable for gaining wisdom and pleasing to the eye. She decided how she was going to behave in relation to God was based on her feelings. Adam's no better, by the way. After they fall into sin, Adam and Eve go hide because they hear God walking in the garden and God calls out and says, hey, where are you? And Adam says, I was ashamed because I was naked, so I hid. Notice, he thinks his standing with God is based on how he feels. He feels shame and so he hides from God. Where God has not accused him of anything, God has come to him simply with a question. But isn't that how we deal with our, with our standing with God today? We think, well, if things are going well for me, then I must be doing pretty well. Or if things are going bad for me, I must be doing pretty bad. No. Take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. I don't care how you feel about it. You're forgiven. And that is beautiful because every one of us feels guilt and shame and regret over all the things that have gone wrong in our lives. But God says, I don't care. I paid for that. Take this. There's probably a second piece to this, um, and that is that our world, our culture, is anti-body. I don't mean like the little cells that swim around your bloodstream and kill germs. I'm talking about against the body, anti-body. Our culture increasingly wants us to not be human around each other. And you can see this in any number of ways. Maybe you could look at how, for the last two years, we have been told to stay away from each other, right? Even when we're relatively healthy, even when we have things that can prevent disease, we've been told to stay away from each other. And how many of us have acquiesced to that request with joy? I don't really like being around people anyways, we might say. But before that, it was going that direction anyways. Right? How many of us interact with people through a screen? We're not actually interacting with real people when we do that. We're interacting with lights that are flashing because of electricity. 
and we're interacting with magnets that vibrate in a certain way in order to mimic a human voice. We're not dealing with real human beings. And in fact, observational science is coming to this conclusion that it's starting to mess with us. That actually, we are, exposed, or sorry, we, are, we are showing our interest in other people in conversation less and less. Now, the way that they see this is how facial expressions uh, react to the words that are being spoken to them. So previously, if you were talking to somebody and they would, they would be talking about whatever is interesting to them, you might nod your head or raise your eyebrows or furrow your eyebrows or cross your arms or something like this to communicate that you're listening. But we have trained ourselves to interact with a computer that doesn't care about our body language. And so we are actually less and less emoting in response to other people talking to us. I've actually had this experience. Once I heard that, I started seeing it everywhere. I'm talking to people and I'm telling them things and they're just staring blankly at me like I'm a wall. Now maybe it's because I'm extremely boring and you can tell me that, but I'm just telling myself it's the research. The point is, this culture does not want us to be physical. Right? It wants us to believe that our identity is not in our flesh and blood, it's in who we think we are. God says, no. If you're physically going to die, then you need a physical remedy to that physical death, and I am physically giving you myself. I am taking your dying body and replacing it with my own. I am connecting you eternally to my immortality because you're not just a brain in a jar. You're a human being who is really dying and whom I am saving. God gives us this objective, historical, physical, uh, eternal connection to him because he knows that's what we need. Now, the last place I said that we're going to meet Jesus is in Christian community. Um, in, in the text, we find out that Jesus, of course, interacts with two of his disciples. And as I was meditating on this, I thought to myself, how would the story be different if there was only one disciple there rather than two? I, I think there's a few different things that we see that happen because there are multiple disciples in this moment. Um, the first of those is confirmation. And I'm not talking about the, the right of confirmation. I'm talking about the ability to confirm a reality. Think about that moment in the upper room, Jesus breaks the bread and you're the one disciple who's there. And you see it all happen and then Jesus disappears from your sight. What's one of the first things you think to yourself? Did I really see that? Immediately there's doubt and Satan loves that because a person by themselves is exactly what Satan loves, right? He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And who do lions love to devour? The one who got away from the herd. But Jesus does this in a moment where these two disciples can turn to one another and say, did you see what I saw? Were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us? If you're going to be a Christian, you need community for this. I know that's not popular in 21st century Canada. We all want to be individuals by ourselves. We don't like people anyway, the whole thing. But if you're going to be a Christian, you are going to be in Christian community. You need it. Right? We, we gather together in rows to interact with God, but what God calls us to do also is to interact in circles, to face one another, to have that moment like those disciples had where they say, did, did you see what I saw? You need that. That's why we have life groups, right? So you can gather with other Christians to ask them, did you see or did you hear what I heard? Is this what the scripture says? Am I getting this right? You don't have to do that in a life group. Maybe you're doing that with your spouse or your best friend. But every Christian needs that. We need that. 
The second reason to have Christian community is externalization. Um, what I mean by this is it's so easy for us when we, have our, uh, when we have faith to make it all about us and our life. Um, it, this is interesting to me. When, when Jesus shows up to Mary Magdalene, this isn't in this text, it's in John's gospel, but when Jesus shows up to Mary, she grabs hold of him and he says, let go of me. Like what she wants in that moment is just to experience Jesus, to have Jesus back, and Jesus says, no. Now, there may be a number of reasons for that, but I think one of them is because Jesus then says, go tell my brothers, right? Go tell the disciples. In other words, an experience of Jesus should lead you to, instead of thinking about yourself and your own spiritual life, to an external focus towards your neighbor. That's exactly what happened for the disciples in this text, right? After they realize what they've seen, what do they do? They go run and tell the other guys. It's so easy for us, though, to think that our Christian life is made up with, am I praying enough? Am I in scripture enough? Am I going to church enough? Am I fasting or Sabbathing? Or am I working on some sins that are in my life that I need to get rid of? We make that our Christian life, and that is not the point. Now, don't hear me saying that those things are wrong, but they're not the point. If your relationship with God is made right, because Jesus has declared, once for all, it is finished, take and eat, then why are you worried about making yourself better? You're already perfect in God's eyes. Now go live for your neighbor because your neighbor needs to hear that. So easy for us to think internally. But the reason we have Christian community is so that we can live for one another. And that starts in here. Right? Galatians says, let's do good to all people, but especially to the family of believers. Your Christian life is lived out in loving one another. And if you're here and you listen to this word, but then you go back to your normal life and you're not thinking about the people who are here or praying for them or calling them or being with them or supporting them or providing for them or forgiving them, you have missed the point of the Christian life. You have missed it. And you can call yourself living the Christian life all you want, but you've missed it. The last bit of this then is presence. And I think this also, it brings us to probably an evangelistic application of this as well. Again, think about how Jesus is going to show himself to his disciples. He's going to walk with them, ask them questions, and eat with them. Like no big shows of power or glory or lightning bolts from the sky or heavenly hosts singing alleluia. Just walks, talks, and eats with them. And that ought to be where we find Jesus also. Jesus is not going to physically walk with us or physically talk with us or physically eat with us, but we will with each other. And when we do that, we are Jesus to one another. Right? First Corinthians says, we are the body of Christ. And in the same way that Jesus says, this is my body, he says, we are his body. That means when I interact with you, in a sense, I interact with Jesus. When I eat with you, I eat with Jesus. When I talk with you, I talk with Jesus. When I walk with you, I walk with Jesus. And so think about that for us as we think about being in life group, as we think about doing life together in general, but then also think about that as we bring people into the faith. It's so easy for Christians to believe that we can provide some sort of product or service that's going to get people to want to come to our church, but frankly, that's not how Jesus reaches people. Jesus reaches people. He proves himself to them by walking with them, talking with them, asking them, why are you sad? What's going on? What things have happened in your life? and then sitting down to eat with them. And so let me challenge you, who's going to be that person in your life right now? The person who you are going to have an intentional listening conversation with this week. 
Maybe they're at work. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe there's somebody on your street. Where you're going to ask them, how's it going? And then you're going to actually listen with emotion. Who's that person who you're going to invite over to sit at your table to just love them because Jesus told us to love people? I mean, how quick we are to put an agenda behind it, right? I need to love this person in order that they'll join my church. Jesus never said that. He said, love them. Because. Okay, so all of this, of course, has been very pragmatic. We've been talking about where to meet Jesus. Um, But I I think in order to want to meet Jesus someplace, like the scriptures, the Lord's Supper, or Christian community, you have to want to meet Jesus, right? So why meet Jesus? Why should we want to meet him? Because I believe that every one of us has the exact same problem that those disciples had on that road to Emmaus. Um, Edgar Allan Poe, maybe you know him, is an author. Uh, Probably his most famous work is a poem called The Raven. And if you know anything about Poe, you know that he is a pretty dark author. The story of the raven is this man who is lamenting a loss of love in his life. And there's this raven that shows up continually in the, the poem. And the raven says one word. You remember the word? You know the poem? Nevermore. That's what he says. And what Poe is trying to get across in this dark, pithy way is the irretrievability of life. Love lost, you can't go back. But that's true of everything, isn't it? Spouse lost, you can't go back. Job lost, you can't go back. Poor decisions in your childhood or your teen years or your adult years, you can't go back. Mistakes you made that can't be done within your family, you can't go back. Decisions you made that you wish would have gone differently, you can't go back. Life is irretrievable. And that's exactly what those disciples were thinking. They just had like three years of awesomeness as they walked with this man who they thought was the Messiah, who was doing miracles, raising the dead. Everything was going right. They saw beautiful things in their future. And then all of a sudden it was gone and they couldn't go back until Jesus was alive. And because Jesus was alive... He didn't just give them a consolation for believing in him. He gave them the retrievability of life. No other world religion offers you this. No other worldview offers you this. They will offer consolation. You went through something hard. Here's something nice to make up for it. Christianity doesn't offer that. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And that means that everything that is sad will come untrue, as Tolkien says in The Lord of the Rings. Everything that you wish was true about your life, God will make it true. It's not consolation. It's restoration. The body you wish you always had, you'll have it in the resurrection. The life you always wish you had, you'll have it in the resurrection. The relationships you always wish you had, you'll have them in the resurrection. All the terrible things that you can't forget, they will be undone. They will be rolled back. They will be erased. If life feels irretrievable to you, you want to meet Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't just give you consolation, he gives you restoration. So go meet him. Go meet him in scripture. Go meet him at the table. Meet him in Christian community and find that gospel. Let's pray. God, reveal us, reveal Jesus to us in the same way that you revealed Jesus to his disciples on that road to Emmaus through scripture, through the supper, and through community together. Pray that you would strengthen us in those things so that we can be a community that defines ourselves by Jesus and shares Jesus with other people. I ask that all in your name. Amen.